Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. There are many changes caused by the coronavirus crisis that were perhaps predictable at the start of the pandemic. A shift to working from home, a rise in home gym sales and just far too many banana breads being baked. But one that was perhaps less easy to forecast was the rise in DIY investing and day trading. Hargreaves Lansdowne recently reported that some 84,000 customers had joined the platform just in the latter half of 2020, with the average customer checking their investments 10 times a week and equity trades up 123%. The story is the same for its rival AJ Bell. More recently, a battle between an army of amateur investors and multi-billion dollar hedge funds ignited a trading frenzy. The phenomenon prompted the city watchdog to step in and warn about trading shares in volatile markets and a lack of consumer protection. But what does this all mean for advisors? How seriously should the advice market take the growth of retail trading and how might they benefit from the trend? I'm Imogen Chu, reporter at FT Advisor, and joining me today to discuss the possibilities is Greg Davies, Head of Behavioural Science at Oxford Risk, and Martin Bamford, Head of Client Education at Informed Choice. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Imogen. Hi, Imogen. Uh, so firstly, what do you guys kind of make of this rising trend? Martin, what do you think is, is kind of driving it? I, I think it's a combination of factors and it's it's fascinating to watch from our perspective. But it's it's the pandemic clearly driving a lot of this. It's people sat at home, bored. Um, in some cases, it's people with extra money to spend. So in the United States, where there's a huge surge towards day trading, they're actually receiving pandemic checks. They're getting money into their bank account, which they don't have anything else to spend it on. So they're popping it into the stock market. But timing wise, I think it's also coming at the end or towards the end of a bull market run, when we often see these feelings of euphoria and people wanting to get rich and jump on the bandwagon a little bit. So it's that, that whole mishmash of things coming together and driving that activity. Yeah, what, what, what about you, Greg? Do you think it's it's kind of all of those things creating a, a kind of perfect storm? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I, I would add one, perhaps, which is I think there's an element of emotional stress to this. You know, the pandi- pandemic has been stressful. And, and from a behavioral perspective, when people are under stress, our emotional time horizons shorten. We start focusing much more on the here and now and the present. And that makes the appeal of, you know, get rich quick ideas much more appealing to people. It means that people are making decisions that are have a higher emotional component to them than they might otherwise. And all of these things, I think, feel, feel, you know, feel the flames of, 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 um, of what we're seeing here. Sure. Um, obviously, it's mainly been on kind of the, the the DIY side of things that we've seen this massive spike. I think we've seen advisors reporting that their clients are kind of more involved in stuff at the moment. They've maybe had the time to kind of take back and maybe sort out their will or life insurance. So we've seen kind of a similar trend in a very different direction on the advice side. But how seriously should advisors be taking this growth of kind of retail investing and trading, Greg? Well, I I think there are worries and opportunities here. So, for example, we did some research a few weeks back where we found that the proportion of people in 2020 that are looking to take advice has increased. And the fascinating thing is that has increased most in the younger population. So these are the people that the financial services industry and the advice industry normally find it very difficult to engage with their finances. So insofar as we can take this trend and we can take this new level of engagement 
and lead that and help and use that to lead people towards good investing behavior as opposed to just catching falling knives, then I think there's there's a real opportunity in this for advisors. Do, do you agree, Martin? Do you think advice firms can kind of benefit from this? I think it can potentially long term. It depends, of course, how we respond to what we're seeing out there as well. I mean, this notion of investors having lots of time on their hands, and you mentioned in your introduction, checking their portfolios 10 times a week, which which horrifies me as a long-term investor to hear about. It's something we, we sadly saw in the past from some retired clients who had far too much time on their hands and they didn't have hobbies, they didn't have things to occupy their time. So we're seeing some of the similar behaviours here now with these younger investors who have far too much time on their hands. They don't have a good hobby to replace that time with. And we always say to people, oh, if, if investing is your hobby, you need a better hobby. So uh, there's an opportunity, I think, as long as we don't just ignore it and leave it alone and expect it all to work out in the end. My, my big concern is we're going to see day trader type activity from these younger investors. They're going to get their fingers burnt inevitably. And then they're going to associate that behavior with professional financial advisors. They're not going to be able to differentiate between what we do and proper investing with what their first experience of the investing market. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we've seen some terrifying things there already. There was this story of this uh, young 20-year-old who committed suicide after thinking erroneously that you know, he had lost a huge amount of money. And this is such a simple thing. But if these platforms are not thinking carefully about the design of how they present information to people, if numbers are presented to people in a way that's going to exacerbate our emotional tendencies to act and to get to get fearful and to get overexcited, that's just causing this whole problem to be much, much worse. And as Martin said, once people's fingers are burnt by the notion, by any form of, of finance or investing, they stop engaging with it for the next 5, 10, mm-hmm. 15 and that has huge long-term consequences. Seems like there's kind of a bit of a, a chasm where on the one hand, we've been trying to get younger people to kind of think about the benefits of investing their money long-term and not just sitting it with it in cash and thinking about their kind of long-term retirement goals. And it's suddenly kind of bypassed the sensible ground and it's gone straight to kind of too engaged and, and, and too focused. And I guess the, the advice industry has this benefit of this level of engagement. But like you say, you don't want them to go too far and be put off the journey completely. What about if, you, if you're if you an advisor with clients who are kind of doing this on the side, so they've got their portfolio that, that you guys manage, and, but they've also kind of on the side uh, are doing this, like you say, Martin, as a hobby. What kind of responsibility do advisors have towards that part of their clients' lives? I think this comes down to education. And we, we had a client the other day when we spent you know, 20, 30 minutes explaining why Bitcoin was such a bad idea and why it's not an investment. And at the end of that conversation, they said, well, what about if I just put a bit of fun money into it and you know, keep it on the side that way? So I, th- I think if we're able as advisors to separate the main financial plan, the main components of their financial plan and the investment portfolio that supports it from speculation, from gambling on things like Bitcoin, on things like GameStop, stock, you know, all these very speculative short-term trades. And and we really need to separate the two and, and keep it clear in their mind which is the sensible mainstream bit and the bulk of their wealth and which is to play money on the side. Mm. I mean, there are safe ways of, of doing this. This notion that uh, trying to get everyone to be perfect uh, is never going to work. And if people have uh, an aspiration, you know, they, 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 they want to be involved in the Bitcoins or the get rich quick, etc., the question is not how we stop them from doing it. 
The question is how we enable them to do that to a small enough degree in the context of the broader portfolio and their broader situation, such that if it all goes wrong, it doesn't have calamitous results for them. Sure. So it's about kind of separating what is a, a client's financial plan and what is a hobby and making sure that there's a, a kind of clear line between those two. Yeah. And interesting. And so it's in my experience from advisors would lead me to say that they might have trouble just accepting that their clients are going to dabble in this kind of stuff. For example, I might ask them, hey, what do you think about this Bitcoin trend? And they'll go, I have nothing to say. My clients would never touch the stuff. And if they did, I wouldn't touch them with a barge pole. That's the kind of rhetoric I I hear. Do you think advisors are going to have to kind of go through a learning curve of accepting that there may be some clients who who want to get involved in this stuff? Greg? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think any advisor that is trying to give genuinely good advice needs to think about their clients much more holistically than just thinking about the portfolio that they have to manage. So, you know, the client's behavioral proclivities and financial personality, it matters to understand that holistic picture. Their attitudes towards doing social good and ESG, that that matters. And the fact that people do have hobbies, do, you know, aren't perfect investors, will go off and do stuff that may be slightly irresponsible or slightly impulsive. That matters too. And if you're going to be a good advisor, you really need to understand your clients as a whole and and not partition them too much into, well, I'm managing this bit, you worry about all the rest. Martin, as a as a trained advisor, do you think you'd be able to kind of separate that? I think so. And I think the speed, the pace at which all of this is moving right now means that advisors have to up their game. They have to up their knowledge around all of these different things. I mean, many advisors, we're not trained when we go through the traditional qualification routes, Just Insurance Institute, etc. We're not trained in some of this stuff around day trading. This is very specialist knowledge, specialist expertise. We're certainly not trained about cryptocurrency. But I think now, more than ever, every advisor needs to educate themselves. You know, how does Bitcoin work? What are the risks? What are the potential advantages? And the same when it comes to the day trading, the type of activity that we're seeing being facilitated via these new trading platforms. Understand how it works so you can have a meaningful conversation with your clients about it. Sure. And so I guess as well, with this pool of kind of potential clients that advisors are are always looking at whether that be kind of the the wealth transfer or inheritance uh, whatever it may be how do you think advisors can kind of sell themselves if it's becoming so cheap and kind of democratized this this style of investing and um i mean we've all seen those ridiculous tiktok video tips that talk about investing don't worry guys it's just a buy low sell high game like what could go wrong if, if people are kind of drawn into that, what do advisors need to do to, to differentiate themselves in this market? I, I think that this is a it's a wake up call for advisors, and we need to move with the times. If, if we are genuinely interested in engaging with a younger audience, we need to create content that's compelling and is engaging. At the end of the day, you know, financial planning as as important as we know it is, and a long term buy and hold investing, it's the right approach, but it's not attractive. It's not sexy. We've got to make it a bit more attractive and sexy. We've got to make it engaging and interesting for a younger audience. We are now competing. I'm sorry to say with these complete morons we see on TikTok who give (laughs) terrible, terrible trading tips. But they are, to some extent, now our competition. 
And unless we find ways to be as engaging, as interesting as they are, but with the right message behind it, not with the same nonsense they're spouting, but with a with a sound financial planning message behind it, we do risk losing, I think, this generation of investors. Greg, what, what do you think? I think, I mean, sadly, I think it's it's going to be very difficult for a pool of people who are doing this because it's entertaining and there's an option, there's a chance of getting get, get rich quick and there are, you know, influential people with millions of followers who are all encouraging each other down this herd behavior path. I think it's very difficult for advisors to <laughs> to entice them away with the, here's how you do it sensibly, folks. And that that is worrying. I do think the trading platforms here have a duty of care in some regard. So I would like to see some of them thinking more carefully about how do we present information to people in a way that doesn't just align them to minute by minute log in 10 times a week that starts to, to present information that's about the long term? How do we help to provide profiling tools and education towards this new cohort of people that are now engaging with the markets so that while they're doing that, they maybe also are starting to build up some deeper knowledge that once they've finished playing around with falling knives, they can actually move on and do something more sensible. Uh, and I think there, therein lies the opportunity. The question is whether the trading platforms are incentivized to do those things. Do you think um, the regulator should step in at all here? I mean, I, I, I did mention it. They kind of warned investors about it. But do you think they're going to have to move quickly to, to respond to, to this trend? Well, I think one is always reluctant to suggest new regulation. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a very popular uh, point of view. But... You know, if there are people who are putting large chunks of their savings into things that are demonstrably dangerous and the providers, the people who are enabling them to do that are not doing anything to try and mitigate that, then I think there is an argument for some regulation in that space. Yes, absolutely. Martin, what do you think? Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, we, we effectively today you've got a 21st century problem with a 20th century regulator. It, it's going to be very, very hard for the Financial Conduct Authority to find the skills and the manpower to, to effectively regulate this. And also, it's a cross-border problem. When you see an influencer on TikTok, I've no idea where that video originated from. I think it's very hard for the regulators to know if that's under their remit jurisdiction here in the UK or it's being filmed somewhere else in the world. So it's, it's a really tricky one to regulate. So you've got the regulator's responsibility. The platform themselves have got a responsibility to make sure their users are not being exposed to dangerous scams and being ripped off and to some extent they do that so I, I think this is such an early stage of what we're seeing this is really only materialized in the last 12 months or so it always takes time for regulators to catch up with these emerging trends but they will have to catch up mm. yeah definitely kind of if you think about the, just the average person kind of going on google and thinking about investing now they've got all these the kind of things they've got to dodge in order to find the safe pass like they've got the the scams offering seven percent to a 20 percent like return per year they've got tiktok videos they've got these sites quick trading they've got bitcoin i mean and like you say like that path is is the least sexy and some most of the time sounds like the least rewarding option so it's it's going to be difficult for the regulator to find a way to keep that as kind of the most well-trodden one, really. Um, no, very interesting. I guess my final question would be that we've spoken about kind of trying to make sure that advisors can capitalise on this trend. Greg, we've talked about how difficult that's going to be. What kind of stuff do you think advisors should be doing? Are there any kind of 
you know, practical suggestions we can offer of should they be getting involved in kind of the video tips game in order to try and get their point across? Should they be trying to just divert people? I mean, do you guys have any ideas of kind of how the advice market can go about this, Martin? Well, we're, we're seeing some, you know, it's quite encouraging early results from the video content that we're creating. So we're, we're trying to warn about some of these scams, whether that's TikTok or the sort of thing that Nigel Farage is pushing. Uh, it is engaging because I think when people search for these, if they find the counter argument, they're interested. But you've, you can't sit on the fence with this stuff. You do have to take a strong position on it to make it you know, appealing for people to watch, to share your opinion and to watch your opinion. We, we have to get onto these platforms. We have to be where the audience is. And whilst for many advisors, the audience, the desirable audience is not younger investors, it's retirees who have accumulated wealth. I think we have to think about the, the future. And there's also a degree of social responsibility here as well. If we can help you know, protect some of these younger new investors from some of the worst mistakes and certainly from the scams they may fall victim to, then it's all helpful long-term for the profession. Sure. Any ideas, Greg? Yeah, I think advisors really, of course, need to engage with with everything that, that we've got, everything in the arsenal. And the increased acceptability of digital solutions and digitization over the last 12 months, I think, is pushing a lot of advisors into better use of technology, better use of video, better, better use of everything. And the message here for me is one of reassurance. We know that people's cash holdings have increased in the last 18 months, partly out of fear. And part of that is entirely sensible. Um, We know that the demand for advice has increased and that has increased more in the younger age groups. There's huge swathes of people out there who are looking for people who can provide them sensible reassurance. And they don't necessarily want to be enticed into the you know the gambling side of things. So I think there's a there's a there's a big market out there for of people who sh- who are receptive to these messages if advisors can use you know new channels to to get to them. I think um as well especially the younger generation who maybe had spent a lot of money before on commuting to work, probably from quite outside areas because they can't afford to maybe live as central as the offices, going out because, <laughs> as I mean, I admit I'm a young person, that's what I did before the pandemic. Like going for dinner, having that avocado on toast that we're always told that we do. Like there was a lot of kind of disposable cash that physically hasn't been able to be spent yet. And we've heard about people, you know, putting a deposit down on the house with some cash savings that they've saved through the pandemic. Those people are reporting all the time that they're becoming more engaged with their finances through this. If you've never had savings, you've never thought about it before because you've never had any money to do anything with. So that first step is kind of being done for the advisors right and so there is this opportunity now to capitalize on it and try and make sure that those people even if it's just the right kind of guidance rather than full-on advice go down that path rather than the DIY trading do you think um there should be kind of a bigger push from the regulators towards guidance for this kind of generation rather than regulated advice just for now so I think historically the financial planning profession has been fairly poorly equipped to deal with this accumulation phase of people's lives. You know, what we do is quite expensive. It's becoming more expensive all of the time. Uh, rising costs for professional indemnity insurance and our financial services compensation scheme levy are just two factors driving the cost up. So making advice, full-blown advice, affordable for people who are in that stage of life, who are get, getting started, having cash savings for the first time, wanting to invest for the first time, is, is a big challenge to overcome, particularly when we've got a fairly limited supply of advice out there still, and rising demand from that 
that post-war baby boomer generation who are approaching retirement age, who have complex needs, who have accumulated wealth. It's it's a big ask, I think, to get financial planners to to pivot and to shift their business model across to younger accumulators. So so guidance probably is the route to it, but I think it has to be guidance around advice and planning rather than guidance funneling people into a product solution because all yeah. of the sort of robo advice solutions we've seen to date are all about the end product and not about planning goals and not about life stages and that, that's a big differentiator for me but i think there is a message that that can come before that so you know if you've got the message that we could go out with is if you're in the situation where you're going out less you've built up a bit of cash that you didn't otherwise have we don't have to go down a full planning conversation in order to do something a bit more sensible with that. And that isn't go onto Robinhood and, and start trading. It's just while you're waiting to decide what to do, rather than keep things sitting in a in a bank account, go and in, invest in a fully diversified, moderate risk, you know, um, index or, or ETF or whatever. There's a very simple message which goes, if you don't know what to do, it doesn't have to mean sitting it in cash, and it doesn't mean having to go and put it in Bitcoin. There is a middle ground that is actually probably your, your best default position, and from there, you can start to engage with advice. Sure, yeah, interesting. This whole middle ground kind of concept of all the things we've spoken about has, has come up quite a lot in this conversation. It's just uh, mm. uh, trying, to, trying to get people to take that path. Great. Well, Greg, Martin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Imogen. Thank you for listening to the FT Advice podcast. Join me after the break where I'm joined by Amy Austin and Rachel Mortimer to discuss the news of the week. Welcome back to the FT Advice podcast. I'm joined by Amy Austin and Rachel Mortimer. Rach, last week, the FCA published its in-depth findings on the impact of the pandemic on consumers. What did we see here? Yeah, so this was... um... Probably its most in-depth and widespread survey on consumers since the pandemic started. I think it was something like 16,000 people they they surveyed. Obviously, whilst we knew that the pandemic was having a detrimental effect on um, finances and well-being, the figures were quite stark. Um, So it showed that the number of vulnerable adults in the UK had grown to almost 28 million um, over the course of last year. So that's an increase of 3.7 million uh, between March and October. Coupled with that, the number of adults uh, suffering from low financial resilience had grown from 10.7 million to 14.2 million over that sort of relatively short period, really, for millions of people to be sort of added to that bracket. You know, that can include if you're in over-indebtedness, low levels of savings or low or erratic earnings. So again, this is sort of the first black and white data set that we've been really given um, since the pandemic started and yeah it certainly did not paint um, a good picture and and the FCA itself as well seemed to really double down on its concerns about vulnerable consumers and what of it, what it expects of, of the industry going forward to sort of to accommodate that. And vulnerable consumers and clients for advisors has been kind of like a big topic over the past few years that the regulators kind of been keeping its eye on and kind of uh, publishing guidance and stuff. How is the advice industry expected to respond to this growing trend of vulnerability? Yeah, you're right. So even before the pandemic hit, vulnerability was a growing area of interest for the regulator and how the firms which it supervises sort of deal with clients in that demographic. 
it was actually the their vulnerability policy has been long awaited and it was one of the things which the FCA had to delay as uh, it's sort of categorized as non-urgent work when the coronavirus crisis first hit in along with the financial lives survey which it published last week the FCA did say that its final guidance on its vulnerability policy was um, due imminently so we should hopefully see that in the coming months but in terms of the industry itself there's some good news that came out uh, yesterday, actually, the PFS um, launched a vulnerability charter last month in a bid to sort of rally the industry uh, to, to this cause. And firms which sign up to the charter commit to nine core pledges. Uh, they can include ensuring clients' interests are placed above commercial interests, uh, treating all clients fairly. So stuff that you would really hope to see advisors practicing anyway, but nice to have it in black and white. Anyway, so yesterday, the PFS confirmed that in the first three weeks of that charter going live, it had already seen 350 advisors sign up to it. So it's definitely a sign of the industry hopefully moving in in the right direction here. Cool. And Amy, uh, moving on to the pensions world, a milestone was achieved last week. What happened? Yeah, so the pension schemes bill finally received its royal assent and to law. Yes, happy days. Uh, so now changes can finally begin to happen. And, you know, the industry are really happy about this because the bill itself faced a few delays along the way, what with COVID and then the 2019 general election and all of that stuff. So yeah, it yeah. seems like absolutely ages ago. Yeah. <laughs> I've been writing about this bill for years. <laughs> So the, so the bill has finally received royal assent. What does this mean for pensions dashboards and other rules expected to come into force? Well, Pensions Minister Guy Opperman said that he is now ready to go full steam ahead and push through as much legislation as he can, like as quickly as possible. So I feel like we're really going to start to see the ball moving on some things. And on a press briefing last week, um, he told me that there were three reasons why the Act was going to speed up the dashboard process. The first one is that secondary regulations can now go ahead because primary have been pushed through during the Act. Um, Secondly, providers are now expected to get on board with the project because before they were saying, you know, we don't actually know if this is going to be a definite, you know, if this bill doesn't go through, then we might not see it or, you know, and they had COVID and everything going on. So they were a bit like, "Mm, why are we going to spend money upgrading our data systems and hand you over all of this data if it's not even in law yet but now it is so hopefully they'll all get on board you know the state will start to be passed over and we can start to see that come through and lastly the government can now focus on the next hurdle so like you know appointing providers to come up with dashboards getting data standards done and sorted all of that kind of stuff so I really do think we're going to see dashboard you know at the forefront hopefully this year or next year. Cool. And obviously that it's it's a positive move for the pensions industry to have all the stuff in the pensions bill receive royal assent. But what about the other issues in pensions which didn't make it into the bill this time? Sure. So it is unlikely that there's going to be another bill anytime soon for, you know, issues surrounding super funds or the statutory right to transfer, which they kind of wanted to do to stop scams because um timing's just not going to allow it. Opperman was explaining that for a bill to go through, he has to get permission from the Prime Minister, Chief Whip, and Leader of the House to put forward a bill in the next Queen's speech. 
I mean, he was saying that the Queen's speech is likely to happen in May this year. So what, that's three months away. And at this point, he does not have a bill to put forward. You know, Superfund's legislation is still being decided. It's still being um, consulted on. There's not really anything there that he can put forward. So it would have to be, you know, the next Queen's speech. So he's saying it doesn't mean to say that between, you know, May 2021 and May 2024, that he will not have the opportunity to present a second bill. And he does, you know, he is looking to do that. You know, there's still stuff that has to come through. But yeah, anytime soon, and don't think so. Timing's just not sure. Okay, great. Thank you so much to Rachel and Amy for joining me. Thanks for listening to the FT Advisor podcast. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.